and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior writer Kathy Kelly and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. March Madness is upon us, but before you turn on the basketball games while you're working, wink, wink, we'll give you the lowdown on the biggest FDA and CMS-related stories from this week. First up is Medicare price inflation rebates. Kathy, this was the first time that they had done this, right? Yes, the first time that they've released um, the list of drugs subject to the price inflation rebates. They started sort of tabulating them um, at the end of last year for Part D, and I I believe the beginning of this year for Part B. But this list covered just the Part B drugs. Um, And the administration released this as part of kind of a a PR thing that happened this week where they were releasing a lot of information meant to show how the Inflation Reduction Act was lowering drug costs. And I think Biden was in Las Vegas talking about this report and some others um, this week. But the list itself is interesting. I mean, it included 27 drugs. Um, Pfizer had five of them, so they were sort of the top um, at the top of the list. The other, I think, two the sort of nearest um, in terms of numbers were, you know, Gilead had two and another company who I can't remember right now had two. Um, but when you sort of take a closer look, um, none of the drugs on the list are particularly high spending drugs. And pharma, in response to the um, report, pointed out that it's a pretty small percentage of all Part B drugs that, you know, are subject to the price inflation rebates. And by the way, those are situations where, you know, prices are increased faster than the rate of inflation. But this release also showed how beneficiary co-insurance will decline as a result of the rebates. And the administration wanted to play that up to show, you know, that these policies are helping beneficiaries in addition to Medicare. Um, You know, in Part B, beneficiaries are responsible for 20% co-insurance on drugs. Um, But when you look at the list, again, of these 27, it seemed a little underwhelming to me. Um, Most of the co-insurance reductions were less than two percentage points. So we'll see how how much of an impact it it will actually have. The other thing to keep in mind is that in Part B, most many beneficiaries have what are called Medigap policies, and those cover their coinsurance anyway. <laughs> so for them, this won't have a big impact. Nevertheless, it was, you know, it's it's interesting to see these policies start to really play out. This report got a lot of good press, and, you know, they'll be coming out on a quarterly basis going forward, and we'll see how, you know, how things develop um, in this area. So the goal, the thinking then is that this isn't going to, this is kind of the beginning and that maybe the effects kind of snowball as we, as we go forward and more of these drugs are subject to these rebates then? Well, we'll see. I suppose, you know, the administration would say that they would want the, the opposite effect, that because of these price inflation rebates, Mm -hmm. we'll see fewer, you know, uh, products subject to them. Um, yeah, it, 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 the goal would be to keep them from raising prices exactly. faster than inflation. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And I would think the current inflationary environment uh, helps uh, pharma companies in that regard because they have a uh, um, a higher benchmark they have to, uh, That's um, true. to clear that, uh, you know, that they can sort of uh, That's um, true. 
make more of a price increase and still not sort of kind of exceed inflation because inflation is uh, relatively high uh, right now. That's true. And and assuming it does go down, we, we may see more, you know, that that could increase the number of products that could be subject. Um, the other thing, too, is that price price increases are not as common in Part B as they are in Part D. So when the Part D information starts coming out, um, we may see more of an effect there. In Part B, manufacturers are pretty sensitive to the possibility that providers could be underwater. You know, it's the physicians or the providers that actually purchase the drugs and then they get reimbursement from, from Medicare. So I think manufacturers are sensitive that the price that providers have to pay is higher than the reimbursement they get back. So that keeps uh, increases in check a little bit more in Part B just because of the way purchasing is is handled. Okay, and I'm... Uh... My ignorance of the of this whole process is probably going to come out here with this question, but um, this week we also saw some more companies cutting insulin prices. Is that that is that connected to this, or is there some, or is that complete? Is that a completely separate type of issue yeah. or program? <laughs> well, it's so insulin is covered by Part D, um, uh, so that's you know different from Part B. But I think the the real um, catalyst there is more something that's happening in Medicaid. It's starting uh, in January of next year. The the cap on the the amount of rebates that companies owe to Medicaid is going to be lifted. So you could you know that could mean like taking the limits away from the number of rebate or the amount of rebates. The, the big rebates in Medicaid come from price inflation. So in that sense, it is connected, I guess. But for for products like insulin that have had, you know, these serial price increases over the years, they could really be in a position where they 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 might owe Medicaid like a lot of money, like they <laughs> would be paying Medicaid a fair amount to cover their insulin products. So the thinking is that these manufacturers are anticipating that situation. And that's why they're announcing the price increases, which do go into effect also in January, which is when, you know, the cap will be eliminated. And speaking of the price negotiation program, since, you know, that's kind of the other thousand pound elephant in the room here, um, the CMS posted a draft guidance describing how it will implement that program this week. Mm -hmm. Uh, They said they will identify therapeutic alternatives and the prices of them as it as they write the initial offer and then they will evaluate the drug's benefit compared to the clinical benefit of the alternative and set a price and then there's other factors they'll consider which will lead to what they called an initial offer and then issues such as unmet medical need and whether the drug represents a therapeutic advance will also be considered and you know, they they kind of explained you know, what they would do if there weren't therapeutic alternatives to kind of compare a drug to. So they said they would look to the federal supply schedule or the so-called big four agency price, which is what the Defense Department, VA, Public Health Service, and Coast Guard will like their maximum price for some of these. Mm-hmm. So now we're in, you know, we've got a little more detail on that. It feels like it's kind of like a drip, you know, 
drip drip type of situation here, I guess, yeah. over the last few weeks. Well, but I mean, yeah. I mean, did, I mean did, how much did we learn, you know, with, with this kind of, um, you know, with this guidance? You know, it's um, this was a big deal because this guidance is the only sort of regulatory direction that CMS is going to be publishing for the first year of the negotiation program. So this is pretty much it. And there's there's a 30 uh, day comment period. Comments are due April 14th. So manufacturers or stakeholders don't have very much time to weigh in <laughs> and try to shape parts of it. Um, uh, it's a it's a long uh, document. It's like 90 pages. It's pretty dense, and I think policy experts are sort of pouring over it now to sort of figure out how things are going to play out, what it means. Just a you know a couple of top line observations. This this idea that CMS is going to to take a what they call a qualitative approach, which you described, um, Derek. You know you comparing a drug to therapeutic alternatives and then evaluating, you know, any special situations or circumstances that would impact the value of a drug. That is different from what they call a quantitative, a pre-specified quantitative approach where there would be sort of a rigid process that they would follow. This one, you know, allows CMS more flexibility. And I suppose it could also be viewed as offering manufacturers more opportunity, you know, to sort of prove the the value of their drug. So that might be a good thing in their in their view. Um, we know that pharma is really going to be focusing on on shaping regulations to allow for sort of special treatment for what they call novel technologies. Um, so maybe this this would be an opportunity for them to to do that. Um, the you know, the, the comparative effectiveness piece I find pretty interesting. Um, that's going to be part of the way CMS evaluates drugs, but they are sort of um, limited in the sense that the law expressly prohibits them using any cost per quality adjusted life year or quality <laughs> metric. So, and, and the, you know, ICER, which is, you know, the most probably well-known health technology assessment organization in the U.S. does use qualities. So that would seem to sort of um, fence off, you know, a use of ICER cost-effectiveness analyses. But CMS does say that even in a, like a report that uses qualities or an assessment that uses qualities, if, if they separate out a clinical evaluation that doesn't involve qualities, they might use that as part of their, you know, sort of research into uh, the value. And ICER does do that. So it's possible that, you know, ICER reports still would play a role. Um, the other thing that kind of struck me is that, you know, regulatory lawyers are going to be pouring over this this guidance as well, <laughs> because there's, you know, a, a sort of a expectation that there will be litigation uh, in this process and um, that the best opportunity would be, you know, for aspects of, you know, the sort of the implementation. And so, you know, one of the things that came up at a, a meeting that I covered a little while ago was that, as part of the negotiation process, manufacturers have to disclose their pricing, but there, you know, there are aspects of pricing that could be con considered proprietary. And so, 
could that be an opportunity for for litigation there? Um, so we'll see. I mean, there's still a lot to I think a lot to sort of understand about the guidance, um, and we'll see how things develop. But uh, but this was this was a pretty big deal. I have to say too, I saw a few uh, CMS uh, speeches during this week, and uh, Mina Seshimani, who is the director of the Center for Medicare, mentioned this guidance, and she just seems so energized about this. And um, <laughs> she was very proud that although in the timeline that they released about when they were going to be, you know, issuing various things as, as part of this implementation process, they said this this um, guidance was coming out in the spring. And so she was making a big deal about how they're ahead of schedule because it's still winter <laughs> and they still got it out, you know, then. So um, they really seem gung-ho about this um, and not uh intimidated by you know this is a pretty big uh lift but they seem ready for it yeah as as, as you were saying uh kathy i honestly think that uh pharma companies should be excited about this uh mm -hmm. too uh obviously they would prefer not to have uh government price setting but if uh they have to live with uh with the ira i think a uh a, a qualitative approach is probably uh, the best they could ask for there it kind of mm -hmm. gives them the uh the maximum chance to uh provide a reason to uh, to get good reimbursement for their drug. And it's not just going to be a numbers game in terms of sort of who, uh, you know, go go lowest. So, uh, yeah, it um, seems like it. Yeah, I guess I'm sure there are a lot of nuances here, but um, it's, it seems like it would be. Yeah, I, I keep I keep going back to the therapeutic alternatives argument or, you know, issue here. Mm -hmm. And you just you wonder and, you know, I haven't read the whole thing, so I don't I don't know if this is already outlined, but what constitutes a therapeutic alternative? Hmm. Because I can think of, I mean, I've, and partly because this is top of mind for, I can't remember why we were talking about it yesterday, but Duchenne muscular dystrophy has several approved products now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They have products that are considered, you know, address the root cause of the um of the disease but then they also have products that are approved to kind of i guess you would say like treat symptoms do you and and some of them are you know like they just have they're they're most i think genericized maybe they're even genericized things that have the extra indication on label or they're off label and they're known to be you know uh you know a treatment that some use and some use successfully i mean you wonder if you know what in that case do you only go with the ones that are, you know, treating the root cause of disease? Do you go with, do you include the ones that these like generics that probably don't cost anything that, but you might be able to make an, if you could make an argument that efficacy is there and, you know, you have to kind of overcome that barrier, you have to get over that bar, you know, you just wonder if, you know, I'm sure I'm not singling out DMD. I mean, I'm just saying, yeah. I'm sure there are a lot of diseases where that is the case where you have generic treatments and then you have these new novel treatments that are kind of in there too but a lot more expensive and how that will kind of how that situation will play out what will what kind of burden will be on the sponsor yeah that's a really good point and a good question and you can see you know insurance companies often do kind of pit um new more expensive um drugs against older ones that you know that might be more symptomatic um so yeah I'm not sure in this case, but it'll be. I, I'm sure that's a that's an important question that will come up. Yeah, definitely, 
definitely something to keep following. And now, now the comment period starts and the wait for comments begins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll continue the pricing discussion uh, by revisiting the Alzheimer's drug Lakembi. Uh, Matt, you wrote about the VA's decision to cover the drug, even though CMS has retained its restrictive policy on the product. Yes, it's a uh, um, uh, very good news for uh, um, uh, Lequembe and uh, uh, you know uh, Alzheimer's patients that are in the VA system as uh, as well. I you know I think we're kind of at uh, um, uh, first uh, uh, blush it sort of seemed like uh, fantastic news, and then sort of uh, um, a little bit more reporting, and it turns out that. Uh, um, that's uh, not actually going to be on the uh, the VA formulary, so there is some sort of kind of uh, prior authorization style hoops that uh, um, yeah, um, uh, patients and physicians will have to uh, have to jump through. But uh, it is definitely a sign that uh, you know ASI has uh, um, learned the lessons of Agihelm, uh, you know, from its initial pricing of uh, um, uh, can be uh, um, you know versus its predecessor to uh, you know I think sort kind of uh, how it's uh, dealing with the. Uh, with payers going forward, it seems uh, as though it's uh, um, you know with a second chance at the uh, um, at success, it is uh, uh, it is seizing what it uh, what it can here. So did now, they basically do what CMS did? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. It's uh, um, you know I uh, at, at this point, and Kathy can uh, probably sort of uh, um, give us some uh, um, better perspective on sort of CMS's uh, um, approach here. That uh, um, you know there is no coverage at at CMS or kind of outside of a, um, a a clinical trial, whereas on the VA, it is, um, you know, listed as a non-formulary drug, meaning that uh, if a uh, physician who kind of wants to make the effort to get it prescribed, they uh, they can and uh, um, they have to uh, get it approved, but it's uh, it's still uh, going to be covered. Yeah. And Matt, in your story, you also pointed out a difference between uh, Lakembi and Aduhelm is that Aduhelm was also categorized as do not promote, which meant that uh, in the in the VA, um, which meant that you know uh, the manufacturers could not even promote the the drug to you know to the VA that they just it it just seemed like it was much more of a slam door um, on Aduhelm. Um, you know, at that time, too, I remember asking the, a spokesperson at the VA if, like, what the significance was of being on formulary versus off formulary, and she said, oh, well, a lot of drugs are off formulary. It's not, you know, that's that's not that unusual. So, um, although it seemed like when we think about something being excluded from formulary, like in the private sector, you know, that's that does seem like a, a pretty big disadvantage, but maybe it's not so much um, for the for the VA. Um, but but yes, as far as what CMS is doing, I think it is considered much more restrictive and onerous than um, what what the VA is is talking about. And I don't it doesn't seem like uh, that is necessarily going to change what well, we'll see. But uh, CMS still seems to be sticking to uh, its its policy that um, even with a traditional approval that these drugs, um, these um, amyloid monoclonal antibodies um, would need to be studied in some like real world uh, research, um, probably through a patient registry. Um, I'm not sure that's going to change. And that that is, con you know, that is considered to be a pretty a pretty big challenge for the manufacturers. There is an evidence development piece in the VA coverage decision, though, right? Yes, absolutely. They wouldn't uh, tell me too much about that uh, 
the VA does have a fairly elaborate, uh, um, if uh, um, uh, somewhat uh, um, troubled uh, um, electronic uh, medical record system that they could they have uh, touted as sort of allowing them to do a lot more uh, research and studying. So it's uh, unclear through kind of uh, how much of a burden the evidence collection will be on uh, patients and providers uh, um, in the in the VA uh, in terms of what they're uh, what they're asking for. But they are definitely asking for more uh, data. And uh, you know I would not expect uh, until uh, um, full approval to see uh, um, any of that uh, um, coverage change. So. Uh, um, just like we're waiting on uh, um, on the uh, the FDA for uh, the next step on uh, Medicare, we're also for probably waiting for the next step on uh, on the VA too. Kathy, as you were saying, yeah, the um, you know I think CMS would like to characterize the evidence collection even after full approval for an Alzheimer's product as not that big a deal, but yeah. uh, um, uh, manufacturers certainly see it as a big hurdle and uh, sort of yeah. kind of what what they what the agency will end up asking for. Is I think a uh, um, you know the the big unknown in terms of sort of, kind of how things are going to shake out uh, once yeah. uh, um, uh, the gets uh, um, uh, its uh, its full approval. Yeah, that's true. I mean, CMS has said that um, it it you know is willing to sort of adjust its its uh, requirements for you know further evidence development based on the strength of the data. Um, and so, right, I, I think it does remain to be seen. Um, I think there is a concern that they might not eliminate the requirement altogether and that, you know, even though CMS has said, and I'm sure, you know, it's true that real world studies are less onerous than another clinical trial, um, that it still will be, you know, a, a significant restriction on access or will present, a, you know, a significant restriction. But but yeah, so that'll that'll wait till the full approval, which I think is is this summer. That's when we'll um, probably learn more about what happens next. Yes, I think it's July sixth. Uh, readers, or, uh, <laughs> listeners are probably gnashing their uh, teeth that they're uh, on this closer than uh, than I am. But uh, um, that, that that is the, the date that pops yeah. into my mind. And I'm not even going to check. I'm not going to. I'm just going <laughs> to um, express express bold confidence in that. So. Yeah, um, so we'll, uh, and we're also expecting an advisory committee uh, um, now. They've announced they're going to have a uh, um, a committee oh. review, so that'll obviously sort of uh, be an opportunity for people to uh, complain about uh, um, everything. Uh, it would be interesting to see if the uh, um, we get through people complaining about CMS at the FDA advisory committee. But uh, since uh, FDA seems to be more accommodating of these uh, um, of these products than uh, um, than CMS at this point, and uh, um, you know people like to complain, it might be. Uh, um, might be a forum for uh, for cross uh, um, agency uh, um, uh, uh, whining, but uh, we'll uh, um, we'll see what happens in the public comment period there. So, since we're all for you know cross agency cooperation and 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 uh, you know and discussion and and everyone working together because that's what the federal government has a long track record of doing. Um, that that was a joke, by the way. Um, could the VA decision inform, pressure, do anything to move CMS off of their current position, depending on, I mean, you know, if if the VA gets evidence that shows something positive, could that in, impact what CMS, you know, decides to do? I think that certainly could happen. The, uh, the idea that sort of, uh, you know, some real world uh, um, experience with the drug shows that, uh, 
you know, perhaps the safety concerns aren't uh, um, as bad as some people might worry, and that's for kind of the, uh, you know, the efficacy is, uh, um, you know, uh, sustained, and uh, um, those sorts of uh, um, issues can only uh, can only help the um, uh, the drug, uh, um, uh, you know, get uh, um, favorable treatment from uh, from Medicare. But I don't see, uh, you know, CMS uh, um, being persuaded by VA's decision, just like they were uh, unpersuaded by uh, the FDA's decision to uh, to approve uh, Adjahelm and uh, um, uh, Lequembe uh, um, in the first place. I think I agree with that. And it's a good point about any real world um, evidence that could be generated by coverage in, in the VA. That could be a good thing. But um, the the numbers might be pretty small. And so yeah. it's it's hard to know how helpful it would be. Interesting. Finally, we're going to look at the FDA and revisit some of its recruiting issues. The Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research surprisingly reopened its search for a director of its Office of Therapeutic Products, which is the office that handles cell and gene therapy applications. The agency began looking in November and closed the application period in January, but on March 15th, the agency reissued the job notice asking for more applications. The second round includes a higher pay ceiling, although that appears to be a federal pay increase instituted for 2023 rather than a specific incentive for candidates. The position also is telework eligible now, which is something that wasn't mentioned in the previous notice, but that also seems to be in line with the FDA's new hybrid work arrangement that was in, that was uh, instituted. Unfortunately, the move once again brings out the FDA's long-known problems with recruiting, especially for senior leadership positions. I have to say, I was a little surprised they couldn't find a suitable internal or external candidate, especially for a position that will oversee this, you know, what is turning out to be a cutting edge science and now drug development area. Um, I also wonder if CBER will have to change its recruiting strategies or targets, you know, for this time. But, uh, you know, Matt or Kathy, I'm curious what you all thought of of this. I think the uh, the problem with whatever I'm going to say, uh, Derek, is you've already uh... Um, made those points in your excellent story, so uh, um, it's uh, um, obviously uh, not good news for uh, um, FDA and you know for sort of both uh, historical and uh, perhaps acute reasons that uh, um, it's it's hard to find folks here. You know, sort of this is a uh, um, very hot uh, um, area of focus, and I thought you know anyone with sort of kind of uh, management and uh, um, scientific expertise is uh, in, in high demand by uh, by industry, and uh, um, you know. Uh, um, that we really sort of have to care about the uh, the FDA mission to uh, um, to uh, to take that job. You know, I was wondering too. Do you think that the public sort of poor public opinion about our our health agencies has anything to do with this because of that, that pandemic? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I don't know if I, I'm not convinced that the the scientific community has the that kind of you know broadly embraces that kind of you know opinion of the public health agencies that we saw um i think my guess is that you know i mean the the, the scientists and cell and gene therapy people i mean they have their own quibbles about how fda does business and you know their you know their standards and and how they apply regulations and so forth but um, I, I don't think that they, I don't think they mistrust the agency in the way that you were hearing public comments about, you know, vaccines and, and, and during COVID and, and things like that. I, I think it, I think that's a, I think that might be a different, uh, 
you know, a different, a different issue. You know, I mean, it, I think it, I, I think it, it, it's probably more of what Matt was talking about. And I mentioned briefly is that the, it, it's hard to find, there aren't that many people that are selling, not only selling gene therapy experts, but reg, understand regulate the regulation of them too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just getting number one, getting, finding those people is hard. Number two, getting them in house at a federal agency that can't compete on salary is incredibly hard. Yeah, and certainly, Kathy, you know, we've uh, talked a lot about how, uh, you know, FDA is working around the clock on the, the um, uh, pandemic issues. And, uh, um, you know, the, the gene therapy shop is, uh, you know, not affected by that in that way. But, uh, you know, we've done a lot of reporting about sort of kind of how much uh, extra work they're having to do just because of sort of the um, the broader uh, industry interest in this area. And so you'll, you'll you would be. Um, coming into uh, um, a situation with a lot of resource uh, um, constraints, and you know the agency obviously sort of worked very hard uh, with their uh, user fee program managers. We're kind of now uh, getting the the resources they uh, they feel that they need to uh, um, you know, to address uh, gene therapy. But uh, it is a situation in which uh, you know a lot of the um, the staff have uh, you know felt were kind of uh, overworked and uh, um, you know uh, really burdened by the amount of uh, um, stuff going on in the uh, in the field so it's a uh, um you know you're not uh, um coming into a uh, a situation in which uh, which uh, um you know you 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 can just uh, make things better you have to sort of kind of uh, fix a lot of uh, um uh stuff that's sort of kind of been uh, been happening just because it's sort of they've been so uh, overworked yeah and during the pandemic they had to move they had to kind of they fell a little behind on some of the meeting i believe it was meeting formal meeting stuff related to cell and gene therapy just because so many people had to go and do handle COVID issues. So they're just, they're now trying to catch up with that. I think, um, you know, Peter Marks has talked about that, how they're, they're trying to catch up on the meeting backlog and make sure that these programs are on, you know, on the right track, but, you know, having to do that, having to come in and potentially, I mean, uh, most of the offices underneath the, um, or at least a lot of them, underneath the director or were filled with acting people too. I mean, whether that the new director would have to hire all those people or figure something out, it, you know, it could be that, I mean, you may, I don't know if that might've turned some people off. I, I have no idea, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, you know, it's certainly not a ship that a machine that's running itself that you would yeah. be taking over. Uh, it does sound pretty daunting. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, some of that, it sounds like, you know, it, it's kind of a confluence of a bunch of things all at the same time. They went through the reorganization. Uh, the director of the what was OTAT decided to retire. And so you have and then they had some other uh, senior leadership uh, retirements, too. So you have all these things happening at the same time. And then you got to try and find somebody to to kind of run the run the whole place. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Kathy Kelly and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. 